crazy, man. How do you have, do you have time? <laughs> he's, like, he's like 60 years old, and he's got it. All right, man, we're back in action here. It's a new strain of the pandemic. It's barreling in at us, but I don't know about you, Big Ray, but I'm ready for it. We're barreling right back with uh, St. Ives. <laughs> We've been watching St. Ives. We're both we're both flexing off the world's problems. <laughs> How you doing, Big Ray? I'm uh, I'm doing well. How are you doing, Nick? I'm good, man. How's the inside of your car? It's it's chilly. I'm not gonna lie. I had a yeah. run in Truvo 15 to uh, warm up the interior uh but uh you can't sit in the garage with the thing running so i had to turn it off so we'll see how long we record here uh i might get a little chilly by the end of it that's all we'll take a break at some point and pound some hard liquor we'll both feel a lot better anyway and run the car yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we are here to talk about saint ives today you're uh, listening to hard times on film my name is nick my name's ray and uh, today we are going to look at St. Ives, which uh, is adapted from the Ross Thomas novel, The Procaine Chronicle. And uh, St. Ives was released on July 31st, 1976 by Warner Brothers. And it's estimated to have cost about $1.5 million to make, which is actually uh, pretty inexpensive when you factor in the number of A-list supporting actors in the cast. And of course, Bronson himself at this time was you know, considered one of the top grossing and, and most popular film stars of that period. So he probably made close to a million. And then you had to pay everybody else. So it's 1.5 million. It's a pretty good investment, I think, in 76. Yes. Uh, St. Ives is noteworthy for the fact that it's it's the first of nine films Bronson made with director J. Lee Thompson and the first of 10 with uh, producer Poncho Conner. And that trio was responsible for a lot of Bronson's most popular films, including uh, The Evil That Men Do and 10 to Midnight. And, you know, it's filmed in 75 in Los Angeles. Bronson was 54 years old during uh, production. And the movie fits just after From Noon Till Three, which was 76 as well, and just before The White Buffalo in 77, which is another J. Lee Thompson, Poncho Corner collaboration with Bronson. So it's uh, the start of a beautiful thing. Uh, he looks fantastic in this movie, lots of style, and it's shot within a year of hard times. So he's also still in tip-top physical condition. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one, Big Ray. I don't know about you, Matt. Oh, I'm really excited. Uh, we're going to talk about all those things. You dropped a whole bunch of topics that we could probably go on forever about any one of them. But uh, yeah, let's jump. Let's jump into it. But we first got to hear what happens in this movie. Oh man, I got to admit, when uh, you're up, when I'm up, and I, it was a daunting task to try to summarize this thing in a paragraph. Um, I don't know if I did it justice, but I'm going to give it a shot. You got your you got your stopwatch going for me. I do, and I'm really looking forward to it because I have I've seen this movie many many times, and I I have no idea what happens in it. So well, I'll uh, I think I, you may be disappointed, but I did my best here. Let's the pressure's on. Let's give it a okay. shot. All right, okay. big great. Here we go. Say, say, say go. Okay. Ready? Go. A huge 70s Cadillac Eldorado floats down a big city street. An impatient, heavy-set, expensive-looking man climbs out, hassles off some street toughs looking a bit too close at his car, and barrels into a gritty walk-up motel. This is the lawyer and business manager of retired crime reporter, budding novelist, and exceptional man-for-hire Raymond St. Ives, played by Charles Bronson. The lawyer informs St. Ives that he's been hired by an eccentric millionaire to retrieve some stolen documents. Mix in a beautiful and mysterious ex-cop named Janet, a dead guy in a laundromat dryer, some shady police detectives that seem to arrive to crime scenes conveniently fast and a rotating door of St. Ives contacts and informants who help him unravel what will soon 
become a hard-boiled L.A. mystery with him at the center. Have no fear, St. Ives is as capable as he is suave, and he soon figures out that the cops are crooked, the old man who hired him is a criminal mastermind, and Janet, the love interest, is part of a plot to kill the old man, frame St. Ives, and walk away with a cool $4 million cash. St. Ives stays on on top of everything and a step ahead and in the end he walks out the door with his nose clean the mystery solved and one step closer to writing the missing chapter of his soon-to-be great american novel well buddy i'm not sure yeah it's uh i glanced um, over a few details it's a bit of a death hunt <laughs> <laughs> you might have might have pulled a bit of a death hunt on this no. one you're a bit over but we'll have to look back at the tape to find out exactly how much okay. over you were. But. To my own credit, though, you got to admit that the plot and the and the action and death hunt is a little bit dwarfed by the goings on of the St. Ives uh, storyline. I did enjoy you, like how you just you sort of brush aside a lot of the comings and goings of the middle third of the movie and just sort of jump to the uh, paint to the the. Uh, the plan with a pretty broad brush there at the end. Well, you know, I, uh, I think that's the only way to digest the movie properly. I think yeah. if you get bogged down in some of the details, it can get a little confusing. So, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Yes. Uh, I want to hear from you. What yeah. do you think about Bronson's entrance in this one? Cause I really enjoyed this one. I think this is a pretty spectacular entrance for Bronson. <laughs> I agree. He, uh, well, when we meet him, he's under the covers. Yeah. He's it's literally an unveiling. Yeah. Well, we get the impression that uh, Ray St. Ives is the kind of guy who is going to sleep in unless he has something important that's going to get him up out of bed. And who knows what he was doing the night before. But uh, he is finally enticed to to throw back the sheets and reveal himself when he hears that there is a, a job afoot. All right, now for the good news. You got an offer of employment. Not interested. You better be, Buster. Abner Procaine. Male, white, 65 years old, extremely wealthy, eccentric, lives on an estate in Homeby Hills. The gentleman has had something stolen. The thieves have offered to return it for a piss pot full of money. You function strictly as a go-between. For which I'll get paid? 10000 cold cash. And uh, if we can finagle it a little bit, possibly even tax-free. Do I have to murder anybody for that? As your lawyer, I would advise against it. Yeah, he throws back the sheet. Yeah, the hair, the the mustache. This is mid-career peak Bronson. Very much the mechanic look, which in our interview with Paul Talbot, he was saying was his quintessential look. I think he carries that look through pretty much exactly here. The same... Uh, same hair and stash from that one. Yeah, his hair is a little longer than it sometimes is. Like the, He doesn't actually have sideburns per se, but the hair is just so long that it's creating them, <laughs> right? And his stash is wispy. Jaylee Thompson does some significant close-ups of Bronson's mustache in this movie, and you can really get in close to see the, the shadow that the hair makes <laughs> on his face, and you realize how, how wispy that stash was. <laughs> so his this is a special role for him i think well, you know what did you what how would you describe sure. the, the saint ives character he's way more upbeat than we almost ever see so right from that first scene where he he hears he's going to have a little bit of money coming in and so he can put some money on the on the football game and he call and he makes that call and then he's just so excited it's like he's back in the game he's rubbing his hands together he's got this big yeah he's got this big broad smile on and there really is a kind of a light touch to this character all through the movie that we off the top of my head i don't know when we ever see that in on another movie from Bronson. But in this movie, it's a really important part, I think, 
of the enjoyment of it is watching him have such a good time. Yeah. He's really kind of a bit more upscale. He's driving a Jaguar. He's dressed in suits, you know, he's hanging out with rich, classy people. And, uh, but then he's also at home with all of the informants and the, and the underworld people that he's talking to as well. So yeah, I love it. And, and I also agree with you that he does a lot of kind of patting people on the back. He's got his buddy Seymour <laughs> there at the restaurant. He's like pulls him aside and kind of shakes yeah. his hand. And, you know, he is really a lot warmer and, uh, and has kind of a, a, a good sense of humor, I think, in this movie compared to some others. Oh yeah. He gets a lot of great uh, like one-liners um like he needles some people like when he buys the guy uh lunch at the <laughs> at the diner there with all that tons of food on his plate and all that kind of stuff like he's just yeah, yeah it's like he's joking his way through this whole uh criminal scheme that he becomes part of he you know i have to say too that his acting in this is really stellar like he really sells some pretty simple lines and adds a new dimension to them in a way that you know really puts his acting on display i think better than some of the films that we've already talked about recently so yeah in my mind this is one of the, the best bronson performances i think i've i've seen to date well, first of all, he gets a lot to say. This isn't a Bronson of few words. Like he he basically plays the role of the gumshoe going from person to person talking to them. That's really the movie as we follow him through a series of conversations, you know, with some action sprinkled throughout. But he spends the movie talking, which is unusual for Bronson. But like you said, he does a great job of it. Well, he also spends the movie looking like a million bucks. So I want to talk a bit about the style. And I got a lot of notes about this. So I want to hear what your thoughts oh, are. Yeah. But I, I wrote a few things down here. So firstly... Um, all the suits are tight in the crotch, flared, flared pants, big lapels, <laughs> wide ties. And he always looks sharp. He always looks classy. Uh, he goes on one of his assignments there to the laundromat. He's got a brown turtleneck and a, and a tweed sport coat. And then he goes to the LA train station where I've been actually, it's pretty cool to see it on film. He's got this beige suit with a big, a big button sewn over his ass. You know, it's a very strange <laughs> focal point and it's kind of a weird, uh, you know, it, it features very prominently in the scene. And uh, there's, there's just so, so many great suits. Like the, the lawyer at the beginning goes whipping in there with a three-piece suit on. It's very polyester, very thick. And it's not that far removed from some of the outfits that we saw in Mr. Majestic that, you know, Renda and his crew of bad guys would wear. Yeah, and he's got, when he's at home, he's got that robe. He's got that house coat, that like silk house coat that he wears with the huge stripes on it. Um, <laughs> and then, um, well, there's a few in this movie as well. It's Janet. She also has one in another scene. And so like, and she wears a pantsuit too, most of the time. So everyone, oh yeah. The men, the ladies, everyone is in these thick, crisp suits. And then when they're at home, they're all in these silk robes. Yeah. Uh, Even of, Procaine. Procaine's wearing like his smoking jacket with yeah. a mascot. Yeah, I think this is one of the only movies where it's like it's overtly in your face fashionable. Like I have to imagine in 1976, these were fresh styles. Like it seems like it's designed that this character, St. Ives, he's not just accidentally like we love everything Bronson wears, even when he's working in the melon fields or whatever. But this character yeah, that car he drives, all the clothes he owns. Like, this is a man of refined tastes. Hey. Hi, Charlie. How are you? You know this guy, Lieutenant? What do you mean, do I know him? Everybody knows St. Ives. 
Uh, he's a big-time columnist, crime reporter. Was, I mean, now he's, uh, he's an author. He's writing a book. How's the book coming? Not worth a shit. Oh. Well, maybe you got a weak story. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, you found him walking around with 100,000 bucks in a bag. You didn't steal it, did you, Ray? No, and I'm not that hard up. Give him back his 100,000 bucks. Let him get out of here. See you later, Ray. Thanks, Charlie. I was noticing that uh, the art department uh, props guy is a guy named Sam Gordon. And I looked into it and he, he's done a lot of films, but he's worked a lot with Bronson. He did art department on Magnificent Seven, on Villa Rides, on Mr. Majestic, on Breakout, Breakheart Pass, and from Noon Till Three. And uh, I love that there's so many cool props in this movie, like the remote controls, the, tele- the telephone technology at the gate. Like it's very 70s, but but cool for 70s, like the remote control for the lights and stuff that he has. And I really yeah. love that he's got that uh the props in his bedroom too, like the onion head book on the on the back wall when he's when he's lying in bed, you can see it very clearly. Onion head. And it was a book that's uh it's released in 58. It's a comedy novel um that was about the escapades of a sailor on leave you know and he's got this beautiful photo actually of bronson with his with a child you know i don't it's like a young bronson with his kid and it comes a couple times yes. in the movie and those are great choices you know and it really adds to the kind of the style and the atmosphere of the of the film to have those kinds of choices being made and one other thing i'll say about this is uh well two other things one is the lighting and direction in the movie it was really uh Painting with a heavy brush sometimes, like for example, uh, you see you see it most in Procaine's house where you first meet uh, Janet, right? Jack Jackie Bissett's character, like she's lit like a window display in a in a store, you know? <laughs> it's really something. And uh, and the music when they, when she steps into the room every single time, it's like a jazzy alto sax or a clarinet, you know. And then the best part though in the house is the big reveal yeah. at the end when when you find out that the psychiatrist is behind the mystery and he's all shrouded in darkness. He looks like yeah. Doug Henning or like David Copperfield, you know. Yeah. He's got that weird long pistol like a like a magician's uh, <laughs> you know wand or whatever how he sets himself up like how long has he been sitting there i know we're getting all the way to the end of the movie but he sets okay wait and, and he you can imagine him like getting comfy in the chair and then getting up to turn the lights off yeah. and getting back to the chair like <laughs> it's so it's so good it's though. great and the, but the, but the yeah. last thing i want to say is like the use of of cars again kind of like majestic it play they play a central role in the movie yeah and in this movie they really dictate the the style you know the mid-70s uh touring sedans like there's so many classic eight-cylinder cars in this movie and i want to give a shout out i did a bit of research on it there's a website called internet movie cars database that breaks down what every single automobile was in this movie and I picked out I, on my own. I picked out the Eldorado at the beginning, and I also picked out Janet's Datsun uh, 280Z, which is, I thought was pretty cool. It's <laughs> cool to see a Datsun on film. What does Saint Ives drive? Saint Ives drives a 1960 Jaguar MK2. Hmm. All right. Yeah. yeah. Cool, eh? <laughs> I'm going to hit Kijiji up and uh, look for one of those. See if any of those are around. Because he looks, so, he looks amazing in that thing. I wonder if our weird Canadian town, you'll be able to find one of those like Kijiji. Maybe. Yeah, someone's got one of those on blocks in their yard waiting for Ray to show up. We're all over the place with the style, but another thing that uh, 
all through the movie there's the just the wildest wallpaper like in in all the different rooms did you notice this like when they go when they go out for dinner and they're at that restaurant and they're 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 watching like that chic <laughs> and those other guys uh you know talking and like that that restaurant is outfitted with just some insane wallpaper and like the most ornate you know it probably had the texture where the it was fuzzy or whatever like all that kind of thing like it is deep into the richest 70s vibe like all through this movie well and i'm going to say one last thing too because back in the 90s there was this uh event where a buddy of mine was shooting a video and he wanted everyone to dress in the most ridiculous fashions we could find so i dressed i had like a leopard skin shirt and big plaid pants and a toque and stuff and everybody was dressed like that and i swear to god man the the scene where the guy gets thrown out the window and then there's a big crowd at the bottom of the building at the end when bronson comes out yeah <laughs> everyone it looked like that video everybody <laughs> everybody on the street was dressed in the most ridiculous fashions you know <laughs> i really recommend anybody listening to go back to that scene and just watch it again and just watch pause the crowd. it <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> well okay. you know one question i have for you is that about the music so uh lalo lalo Schifrin is that how you pronounce this lalo name? lalo Schifrin. yeah lalo Schifrin um is probably the most celebrated like top-notch composer we've encountered yet talking about bronson movies like this guy uh he's an argentinian composer uh, he starts off in the 50s playing with Dizzy Gillespie. Uh, and then he launches into this absolutely like massive career, scoring over 100 movies. He's responsible for a ton of great stuff. Like He, he does the Mission Impossible theme, um, all the Dirty Harry movies, uh, Cool Hand Luke, uh, just like movie after movie. Uh, weird ones like he does those Rush Hour movies with Jackie Chan. <laughs> And uh, I, I got to do a really deep cut shout out to um, the Planet of the Apes, the series he does the music for and the theme, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I love that show. And he does the theme for that. So, yeah, Lalo Schifrin, um, amazing stuff. And this is textbook 70s thriller funk, really, is what it is. It's like heavy on the hi-hat. Um, it's bass driven, uh, it's accentuated with like hand drums and wah-wah. And then we get this, these soaring orchestral melodies over top. Uh, and it's such a familiar sound because I don't know who laid the foundation for this and who copied who. I don't think he, he didn't invent this combination, but it'll make you think of like, you know, the theme to heart to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That yeah, one yeah. or the, or the theme to Vegas, uh, uh, though, in fact, I had to go and check the theme to Vegas because it sounds so similar. Uh, it's a little bit like the Love Boat theme too. Even I, even even Shaft and stuff, though. You know. And and that's the other thing I was going to say. It's firmly in the Shaft uh, vein, especially a Shaft's big score, probably the second one. That yeah, it uh, it sounds like all those movies, which is kind of funny. It creates this sort of weird loop because Shaft was obviously like an urban african-american version of a classic gumshoe detective and then we get saint ives is almost like a uh, this upper 
class like white shaft like it's like the snake eating its tail like you know like shaft imitates kind of like uh, sam spade or whatever and then saint ives comes and and does and does shaft so, yeah it's this weird cycle i don't know that just occurred to me just with the fashion but he lives in kind of a crummy apartment he's very shaft like in a lot of ways the way he moves through uh the rich and then all the informants and stuff it's very similar to shaft in a lot of ways yeah, it's really unfortunate. This soundtrack doesn't get a release, even at the time, which is really weird in 1976 for a major film starring Bronson from Warner Brothers. It doesn't appear to have ever come out. If I had to guess, I think it's because there might not be an album worth of music in it. Someone's done a supercut of it on YouTube that you can listen to. There's like 10 or 12 minutes where they've taken it all from the movie. And put it together pretty nicely so I, I think all the listeners should head over to youtube and and listen to that it's pretty good i forget uh i forget who did it but another thing you can do is that lalo schiffer in the same year 76 puts out an amazing album called black widow and you can get it on your spotify or your apple music or whatever and it's a really cool album and uh you, although you can't get this soundtrack you can go listen to that one i, I don't think you'll be disappointed it's called black widow so, you know, that might get us into our uh, our substance talk here, the big ideas section of our podcast. And again, you're listening to Hard Times on Film and uh, with Big Ray, and my name's Nick. The Substance, according to Nick and Ray. You know, I didn't really see that there was a big grand point being made here. There's no social commentary really in this film. There's not any underlying ideology at play. Uh, in the story that's being told. You know, I really just think this movie is about entertainment and it's masterful in the way that they've executed that. You know, from the fact that, um, like, it's a great mystery. There's this mystery that needs to be solved. It, right from the start, you're not sure what's going on. They really play with the viewer. Uh, there's a few options pretty much off the bat. As you get to know the characters, you're thinking, yeah, it's probably this person or that person who's going to be responsible or be the, the ultimate villain in the end. And, um, and you're right. You, you know, I think I picked out that psychiatrist pretty quick and it was, wasn't a shocker that he was revealed at the end to be the, the mastermind behind the <laughs> caper. You know, the other thing I really love about this film is all of the characters are so well developed, even though we don't know their backstory. So there's not a lot written into the script um, that, that tells you who these people are. But the way St. Ives interacts with them and the closeness, the viewer just kind of goes on this ride with St. Ives and you really feel like you're in on this, in on some sort of little community, right? Like all these people know each other. They all know what's going on. Um, there's lots of examples like Hesh, the guy who runs the, the restaurant, like he knows everything that St. Ives has been up to somehow. Yeah, I think that's just such an ingenious uh, device for establishing an atmosphere and really creating a world that you're you're in when you're in that movie. Um, but listen, you know, the whole point of the the big ideas or the substance element of our podcast is to try to dig in a little further. And the only thing I came up with really that that is sort of interesting is the message about temptation and honesty. And that's something that's not that big a shock. Like they actually come right out and say as much on a few occasions in the film. Um, the best example of that's when, uh, well, there's two examples. The first is when Charlie, the, the lieutenant, who's just great. I love that character. He picks up St. Ives at the hospital and drives him home. And en route, he, he says that what he and Bronson are doing in their professional lives is essentially 
pushing a bucket of shit around with a short stick and at any moment they could fall in if they give they give in to the temptations of their work that's a cruel thing to do to a cop no questions i'm clean Shelley. maybe but you're pushing a bucket of shit around with a short-handled stick i'll tell you that that's a nice figure of speech and you could fall in the bucket easy just like me you Charlie? i don't believe it oh teeter-totter buddy teeter-totter i've thought about it and so have you like when you were hustling uh, crime exposures for the newspapers <laughs> expose yeah well the right kind of payoff here and there and uh, some of those stories might not have appeared yeah, you're right, Charlie. You have thought about it. But if I fall in, and then later, Procaine tells Saint Ives that uh, they could be friends because they're both so fundamentally honest. Saint Ives is—he's a gambler, but uh, and he's doing this shady work. He's a go-between, but he never takes money that isn't his, and he only gambles once he knows that money's coming. So I think that yeah, his his honesty is juxtaposed against uh, the dishonesty of other characters. And I think a great example of that is, is Janet, the cop who probably got a better offer from Procaine and, and then embraced this life of crime with him. And she's also revealed to be kind of not a great person when she guns down the two cops and really seems to enjoy it. And Bronson's like <laughs> visibly disgusted by that, right? And then in the end, Charlie, the lieutenant again, he's, he's sitting there with, uh, with the, at the very end of the movie with Janet handcuffed and there's $4 million on the table and Bronson walks out, keeps his nose clean, right? And we're left wondering if, uh, if he accepts her offer to, to help her off with her wet clothes. And, and then, you know, it's implied that maybe they might split up the $4 million bucks. So I think that's, my, that's really my idea. It's, it's not much of a, of a stretch, I don't think. Obviously, the movie really kind of leads you there, but it is about honesty and, and temptation in, in my mind. What about you, Big Ray? What do you, what do you think? So I went sort of a different direction with my big idea for this one. It's not really about the plot of the movie so much, but it's more about, it's more about Bronson a bit and, and how this movie is different from his other movies and his persona is different from other movies. And so I was thinking a bit like one thing about this movie is it's very clearly an homage to uh, a couple of other movies, like most notably The Big Sleep, like um, the scene where he goes to see Procaine. He's sort of called to this ailing elderly rich guy's um, estate where he's given a task and he spies this, this young good looking woman is, is taken right out of the big sleep uh, with Humphrey Bogart. And you'll see the, and you'll see the same scene again uh, in the big Lebowski where Lebowski goes to the Lebowski estate and he's his bunny there. So they homage the same thing in more ways. So that, that's a great triple bill, but that got me thinking about Bronson in the in the bogart role because this is the first of two times that Jay Lee thompson is going to put bronson in a in a very specifically bogart role he does it this time and then cabo blanco while not a, a direct remake of Ca casablanca it's like it's the whole movie's basically a riff on casablanca with a little bit of key largo in there too so there's a couple movies that are there's a direct link but like bronson is playing the bogart role and and he and jaylee thompson's kind of positioning him as like the bogart of the 70s uh which is a really interesting thing to think about and there's a third movie that links them too which i discovered once i started thinking about this which is the uh kid galahad 
Bronson is in Kid Galahad with Elvis in 1962. And that movie was based on an earlier Kid Galahad in 1937, which starred Humphrey Bogart. Now, it's not quite so perfect because they don't play the same role in those two movies. I wish they did because that would really, that would, that would be great. But they, they do play different characters, but they're in that same story. And so anyways, I'm thinking about Bronson and, and Bogart and the interesting things that they share. Like both of these actors become big stars later in life. Like Bogart doesn't hit his big roles till he's into his 40s where he moves out of playing bit players and, you know, like uh, toughs and henchmen and stuff like that. And Bronson, obviously, as we know, in his early, not so his early 50s, does he really break out and become a big star? Both of them were on the short side. Uh, Humphrey Bogart's 5'8", Bronson's 5'9". And both of them weren't really traditionally handsome men. Not not in the, you know, not in that sort of marquee star, big draw, good looking guy kind of way. No, it's like they said, he's a handsome, handsome, ugly guy or an ugly, handsome yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, one of the two. And they were both and they were both like that. So they both had a physical presence like Bronson more so in a muscular way. But but Bogart has a real physical presence, too. He holds himself in weird ways and his pants hiked up and he's always decking guys with these like six inch punches and stuff like that in those movies. So they both have a physical presence. They're they're both they both have like again, like what what Talbot called an arresting face, right? Like a face that just captures your attention, even when they're in the background, they don't ever just fade into the background because they've such interesting faces and they were both depicted on screen as leading men who women love i don't know how much of that is a creation of the movies that they're in we'd have to like maybe go around and ask some ladies i'm not sure but both of them in their movies they fall into bed really easily with you know the femme fatales or the pioneer women or whoever's around in whatever kind of movie it is (laughs) yeah you know and and we just take it for granted in the movies that like like Jacqueline Bissett sees Bronson in St. Ives and, and he, he says something complimentary to her and, and, and she's like, Oh, I was wondering when you'd notice, like, she's just all about St. <laughs> Ives is the first time she sees him. And you might, I don't, I don't know. Like it totally makes sense to me. Cause I think Bronson is awesome, but I'm not the target audience. I don't, I don't know. And same thing with Bogart. Like he's always hooking up with women where I don't know, he probably looks just more like somebody's kind of oldish uncle. But I think, but you have really. to think though that we are actually the target audience, and to see these kind of guys that aren't that aren't that far removed from reality, having such a good a good streak of luck with these women, you know, <laughs> yeah. gives all of us yeah. a, something to hope for. And I think that's that's sort of the obvious read. Like I thought of that. Like somebody might say, "Well, these you know these aging actors that aren't really that good looking. They're just some sort of like." power fantasy for old men <laughs> who want to who want to see themselves depicted on screen like scoring with women and like being badasses or whatever but i think there's something more to it than that like when i think of all the actors like this that i really love like the ones that i kind of get obsessed about or might want to read read about or collect their movies they're all kind of like this and that's sort of where this idea took me is this sort of realization like when like when i want in my actor is i want a guy who's middle-aged who whose face shows 
like wear and experience and doesn't look like anybody else who's really interesting but still has like like a physical presence Ah, totally. Yeah, me too. So I, um, like thinking of other guys I love, like I love Charlton Heston, who Ah. as a young actor was a handsome young actor, but he didn't age all that well. Like, and as he got older, he started to look more, more individual and more craggy. And the older he gets, the more interesting I think he gets. And he's awesome in the seventies. Yeah, man. Like Henry Silva, you know, or Liam Neeson, maybe more, it's more modern example. And the guy I'm watching lately a lot is Roy Scheider. Like, I love Roy Scheider, man. This guy is such an interesting looking dude. Like, no, nobody looks like him. And he is super fit as well. Like, guys in his 50s, he looks like an Olympic swimmer or something like that. Like, a different kind of physique. But he's super thin and super so fit. Gnarly. Yeah. And he's not in that many movies where he plays roles like this. But they're really good. But the ones he's in are really good. So I, I don't know, like, I don't know what it all amounts to, but there's a certain kind of power and wisdom and kind of mystique when you get all those qualities all mixed up together. Guy who's older, looks a little interesting, but still looks like he could do something physically and has some power. Like, that's the recipe as far as I'm concerned. Big Ray, as always, you're spot on. I love this take. I couldn't agree more. You know, as someone who's getting a little bit closer to the age Bronson was when he filmed these movies, I have to admit how uh, I am definitely attracted to these films because of the aspirational quality. (laughs) You know, I don't know if I want to end up looking like Roy Scheider when I'm like 50 or 55 (laughs) or whatever, but uh, uh, yeah, I I see where you're coming from for sure. And I completely agree. Yeah. It's that, it's that individuality. You can't just sub in some modern actor. Seeing him navigate the streets of Los Angeles as a 54-year-old man dressed in a brown turtleneck, like it's something to aspire to for (laughs) sure. (laughs) So listen, talking about that, like let's switch over to the action. And this wasn't an action-packed movie, but there's there's some subtle stuff in this movie I want to talk about, but... One of the things, obviously, the Bronson did his own stunts in this movie, which is kind of cool. It's not something that he did in every film, but certainly a shout out to him dangling in the elevator shaft and falling from the elevator. That was pretty amazing to know that he did that himself uh, when he's assaulted by those three street toughs, which is uh, including Robert Englund and Jeff Goldblum. And I, some of the action to mention is is uh, Robert Englund in those jeans. I don't know if that was paint, if that was paint or were those actual pants. Unbelievable. <laughs> One thing about this movie is it's not, there's no shortage of, uh, of really tight pants around the waist. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> my, my favorite uh, note on the action though, is when, when Janet visits St. Ives in the guest room and she takes off that house coat you were talking about earlier, like that silky house coat that she's wearing and he's, he's like sleeping or just preparing for the, for the heist or whatever. And she walks in and, and uh, she just drops her house coat and just sort of drops to her knees, which is amazing. And then the whole scene cuts to this big screen of fireworks, right? And Procaine sitting yeah. in his home theater enjoying this footage of fireworks. And I don't know, like to me, I watched it a few times and it kind of suggests this idea that maybe Procaine has a closed circuit kind of situation going on and is <laughs> he's actually watching them somehow, you know? 
I don't know. Maybe it's just me projecting my filthy, paranoid mind, but... Uh... No, it's funny you should say that. When I talk about the book, there'll be a little something to mention about some about something like that. You're on to something. Oh, I got a lot of questions for you about, from the book. Like, I'm really excited that you read that book. So we'll get to that in a few minutes for sure. But last thing about the action that I'll mention is I love the two cops and their masks. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. They look fantastic. And I love the scene, obviously, uh, with any of the scenes with Jeff Goldblum with his mouth open, just looking, uh, you know, super, either super freaked out or super excited. And when he pulls that razor on Bronson, thinking of the, of like the modern Jeff Goldblum attacking Charles Bronson with a, with a straight razor in like an abandoned warehouse. It's pretty, pretty fun. Now, this is the second time that Jeff Goldblum has attacked Charles Bronson, no? Yeah, yeah, it's because they were together <laughs> in Death Wish. Yeah. Is it the same guy? Yeah. Well, no, like they, no. Do you think it's the same character? He reprises his character. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Well, here's a question for you. Like, I want to get into this just for a minute. So there's three things in this in this movie that I can't figure out. And I want to ask, okay. I want to ask you this before we move away okay. from the substance and the action. Again, I wonder if you can help me with this. There's three things. First thing is who hired the three thugs? Okay. Cause they obviously knew he was a go between it's implied when, when, when Goldblum says, you know, we're going to get you calls them that go between yeah. that yeah. one. Then there's this weird scene in the lobby of his ho- of his motel. When Bronson goes through, gets his keys, walks out. And this guy who's very well dressed with short black hair follows him out and then follows him all the way to Procaine's house, right? Who the hell was that? And then thirdly, <laughs> this is the biggest mystery, when they're sitting in that fancy restaurant, Procaine, him and Janet, there's someone like filming them and and uh, have they're all bugged. There's microphones in the in the wine cooler, you know? <laughs> Like who's doing yeah. that? Like, is that the psychiatrist? It's certainly. Is it like the cops? No. Here's another. Here's another thing. I don't know if this is on purpose because I can't answer any of your questions, Nick. <laughs> I've seen this movie ten times, and I I defy anybody to really explain all the moves that everybody makes well, where's, and who's exactly responsible for what. Where's Paul Tabot when you need him on this one? Because I mean, he, he this is a missing chapter from Bronson's loose again. We got to, we got to get him on the horn here and ask him some questions because I'm really, I think what happened is that a lot of that stuff that maybe tied it all together was edited out and that the original script likely had some, you know, unifying uh, threads that would have made those scenes make sense but they probably just edited them out and they still look fantastic so they left them in but they don't make any yeah. sense in the in the structure of the movie but i think there's a chance that it's also purposeful because i as i said earlier like this harkens back to those old bogart movies and especially the big sleep and the other thing about the big sleep is it notoriously doesn't make any sense like it's it's a movie that's known for it being basically impossible to follow exactly what happens and there's similar scenes in that movie where people seem responsible for things or like they know something or they're whatever and you can't really uh, you just kind of have to go with it and not even try to figure out what's going on like and then is and then it sort of sticks the landing kind of like you did with your rundown as long as you get to the end and you see who was responsible. It's all that really matters. But I couldn't tell you. you. No, no, I agree. 
Yeah, I know. And, and I mean, I got there myself too. I felt like, you know, this, these scenes are great. Like when he goes to Daniel J. Trevanti and, and he gets that, uh, that scene where he yeah. gets the car shot up. You're like, who is that? And why did he go see him? It doesn't really matter. It's just great. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe Bronson's being followed by a bunch of people. Like maybe he's, uh, you know, or maybe Procaine's being monitored by, by others who just haven't materialized yet. You know, it's, it's cool. It might, it might even have been, there might've been, in your imagination, you could think of alternate endings when there, you know, when there's another group of of masterminds who are waiting around the corner once Bronson leaves. Like you just don't know, and I think that's great. Yeah. I think it's great that it's, it's there's question marks like that. I love that scene with Daniel J. Trevante. He's great in it. Like he's he's great in that one part, and there really, yeah, there really is no reason for him to go see him at all. It's he's just one of the guys that he's just going to looking for information about boinkins or or whoever yeah. and and while they have him there they stuff him in this bulletproof car to test it out just for just to give him a hard time yeah. and they have a co- and they have a coke and then he kind of heads off <laughs> i love the guy who shoots him down though the guy running <laughs> yeah. that machine gun looks so yeah. insane it's great man yeah he just loves it yeah. he loves the opportunity well wouldn't you though like imagine if someone just handed you a machine gun and said just unload it into that car yeah the, the thing about that though is it's so it's an armored it's basically got this armor on it buddy's just shooting just back and forth like <laughs> yeah. dude that's gonna be ricocheting like crazy he doesn't give a shit man he's just firing full full force straight ahead yeah my favorite is like because you're watching it and you're like, why are they doing this? They're destroying that car just to play a practical joke on Bronson. They're going to destroy this car. And then he gets out of the car and um, he says, well, we had to, we had to test it. We had to test it out. Like that's how they, they just justify having it in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It was a great stunt though, for sure. Uh, yeah, it is. Love that one. But that's uh, those are good answers, man. Those are good answers. So, I guess as we usually do, we'll get into the co-stars, creators, and production. I've already talked a bit about the art department and stuff, but there's some pretty noteworthy um, co-stars. Yeah. Again, like, there's so many people. When you when you think about the fact that Bronson's this move in this movie, and then you got Lalo Schifrin doing the music, and then you yeah. count down the list of absolutely A-list Los Angeles Hollywood. Action actors in this film it's mind-blowing how many good actors are in this movie not to mention like so it includes two oscar winners a john houseman and maximilian shell are both and yeah. and you know the psychiatrist god does he ever look like sasha baron cohen like I, I, it's just hilarious <laughs> if they ever remake yeah. it yeah and uh yeah. and then future uh, oscar nominees uh michael lerner and jeff goldblum are both in this movie too so pretty uh pretty thick uh a-list group there but as i often do i went down the list of of people in this film that are kind of worth talking about um michael lerner was the, uh, the lawyer so he was also in borderline with bronson he's in barton fink which is uh, one of my favorites um uh, alicia cook jr the hotel guy I don't know if it's Elisha, but anyway, the old guy who's like basically. The, oh yeah, you know, that guy's in everything, right? Like when, when the the lawyer, his agent, or whoever come the very first scene when so he gets those guys to watch his car, and then he comes in, and within the first minute, you have those two guys on screen together, 
right? And they're both so recognizable. You're like, it's that guy and it's that it's guy. Amazing. I know them from a hundred different movies each, and you just know you're in uh, for something great when those two guys are in it in the first minute. Yeah, like Alicia Cook was in 200 other movies and TV shows. Like if you look at his his IMDb stat list, it's unbelievable. He was he was also in Drumbeat with Bronson, and I, you'll remember oh, wow. from our interview with Paul Talbot that he recommends Drumbeat. So that's another reason to watch that film. Um, Harris Eulen, uh, he plays one of the crooked cops, right? Uh, and he also, he's the guy from Scarface that plays the crooked cop in Scarface about five years later, right? Uh, guy's typecast as a crooked, he, he just looks like a crooked cop, I guess. Those guys were so well cast. They're so believable. Yeah. I, my favorite, absolute favorite scene in the movie is when, when they've just thrown that guy out the window and they catch Bronson in, in his room. And then, uh, you know, Charlie, the lieutenant comes up and, and that guy's like, they both are referring to that woman. You're off the hook, St. Ives. What? Yeah, his story checked. That whore downstairs. Yeah, well, I don't care what the whore said. I think you've done it. Jesus Christ, leave the man alone, will you? And stop calling people whores. Cops. Jesus. Screw. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> First, a hundred thousand dollars in a stiff in a laundromat, and now a guy squashed on the sidewalk. So funny. <laughs> yeah. Jerome Thor, who plays Chasman, I think that's the guy who's like the 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 plant. He's the inside guy in the between the electric company and the Arabs, which is pretty funny. It's just very generalized. Uh, he's in Ten to Midnight with Bronson. He's in Murphy's Law, and he's in Kanjite, uh, uh, Forbidden Secrets. So I need someone to look forward to in some of those films when we get there. Uh, Finley, who's uh, who I loved in this movie, that's uh, Val uh, Bizaglio. He's uh, John Travolta's dad. He's he's Tony Marinero's dad in in uh, Saturday Night Fever. So you and he's also in Serpico, which is great. Is he? He's the guy at the diner. Yeah, yeah, he's the guy yeah, he buys all the food for. Dishing out all. Oh, the guy he buys the food for. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No Hesh, you're thinking of Hesh. Oh, yeah, we'll my get God. to him. Oh yeah. Hesh, that, that actor, it's just incredible. Like I didn't write some of these guys down because we could have just went down a rabbit hole. There's so many actors in this film that had yeah. massive, massive careers with, with, you know, so much to talk about, but I, uh, I tried to be, be merciful. I will say, I want to shout out to uh, Glenn Robards who plays uh, Procaine's Butler. That guy, did that guy have like a Brazilian butt lift or something? Like he has the biggest bum <laughs> you know, for a man his size, it's just unbelievable. I hate to. You really tuned. You really tuned into the pants in this movie, man. <laughs> you know, when I watched this movie with my wife, and she. Had... Oh, so she did. She draw your attention yeah, to some of this? Like, yeah, she did. Like brought... <laughs> Robert England's uh, yoga pants style jeans, and uh... <laughs> someone painted that guy's jeans on. I swear to God, and also uh, Bronson's, Bronson's button on his suit when he goes into the into the uh, trade station but hey last thing i'll say um is uh i want to also give a shout out to cole's french dip is it's the restaurant that he goes to where, where hesh works yeah and that's that's a real restaurant that i've been that's to operational it's operational oh, wow. it's the oldest saloon in los angeles yeah it used to have a speakeasy in the back and everything it's a real place it's really famous and you've been there yeah yeah, I've been there. Did you did did you know it was in this movie when you went there? God no, I would have gotten a 
tattoo or something. No, man. I wish. <laughs> yeah, next time I'm, next time I'm in LA, I'm going. Absolutely. That is like top of the list of Bronson tourism. I don't like are they gonna like can I get myself an like a massive plate of beans and <laughs> sausages? <laughs> I'm sure you could. Yeah. And, and you had a huge beer. And the next time yeah, I'm, at, I'm in the, LA, I'm going back there and I'm definitely going to go and use the stall use stall <laughs> one at the uh, train station. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Before we leave uh, the diner, whatever, whatever it is, I think this place is amazing. It speaks to a time when like, I don't know, I wish I had a place like this to go to. It gets just packed with people on their on their lunch, and they're all drinking huge goblets of beer and just drinking the most rich, like European-looking food, like these huge, disgusting sausages and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I love all the scenes that take place there. Oh man, it's so cool. Okay, one last guy I want to just give a quick shout out to is there's a good friend of Bronson's was in this film. And that's the guy who plays Seymour. His name's Joseph Roman. And I forget the total connection to him. But um, again, no, shout out to uh, Paul Talbot because he he notes in his book that this is an old friend of Bronson's. And Bronson always tried to get this guy a role if he could. And I thought he was great. The guy, you know, the character Seymour is really likable. It's not really explained how he knows him. It's assumed maybe that he's a, you know, either like one of his underworld gambling buddies or he's a, a, a reporter that he, that he knows. But everybody seems to hang out at that same restaurant. And uh, yeah, Joseph Roman was also in The White Buffalo with Bronson. He was in Love and Bullets with Bronson. And he was in Murphy's Law later on in the 80s with Bronson. So uh, lots of great actors, man. You know, I honestly, I could go on and on and on. Every single person on the IMDb has a stat list of between 40 and, and 300 films and television shows. So pretty incredible. That is one thing to say about this movie. Like every frame, there's somebody in it who like you want to look at, you recognize, um, it's funny that they're there. Like, it's just, you're, it's just an eyeful ever in every scene. Yeah. And I mean, and the acting is so high quality and then same with the direction. Like you can see why Jay Lee Thompson and Bronson work together so often after this film, because the direction was really masterful. There's so many, uh, single shots that you're just looking at. Like that's a work of art, you know, the framing, the speed, the, the pacing, like when he first sees Procaine and he walks in and the camera moves forward slowly and Bronson's stepping backwards, yeah. but it's it just reveals Procaine. It's so effective, you know. I also love the edit of the guy going out the window. How it's just like in the middle of a conversation, you just cuts to this. You only, it's only two seconds of the guy getting thrown out the window. Yeah, yeah. it's a great, it's a great cut. It's really good. It works. I love too that the guy getting thrown out the window is this super skinny, tall guy. And then on the ground, he's this big, thick dude who's like lying <laughs> on the ground. Yeah, like I didn't do his own stunts. Are you saying? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, man, I want to hear a little bit about the book. So, okay. you read this one. What do you think, Ray? And, and how close is it to the film? You're about to be backed into Bronson's Book Corner. Well, uh, St. Ives, like you said earlier, originally called The Procaine Chronicle. This is a book that was published by um, under the name Oliver Bleak. Uh, but Oliver Bleak was the pen name of Ross Thomas, uh, who is much more famous under that name and has many, many novels. But the only novels he wrote under this pen name were his St. Ives books, and there's five of them. So um, if you can't get enough St. Ives, you don't get your sequel, but there's five books out there 
that's feature this character. The first one being uh, the brass go-between. Procaine Chronicles actually the third of the books. So he's already kind of in full swing as a character uh, within this series, um, in this book. It's sort of like a first-person, hard-boiled detective novel. So, so it's in, it's always interesting to read where you're you know you're you're picturing Bronson, but you're getting the first-person perspective. We hear what he thinks of everything going on, uh, and he really has a lot of snappy dialogue that really kind of you know noir voice where he's got a quick comeback for everything and a couple of the good lines they do take uh right from the book so it is very very similar in a lot of respects there are some differences though like procaine in the book we find out he's a criminal mastermind right from the right from the jump at the start of the book he's this well-known shady figure who who kind of like works in the shadows and people have heard of as this master thief but you know nobody can catch him or you know and no one can uh, you know has anything that sort of proves that he did any of these amazing uh, crimes that he pulls off and then we also get the therapist is also in the shadows for the entire book until he's revealed like you pointed out sitting <laughs> in the chair at the end of the movie so you might imagine the movie if we had never seen him before we had only heard of him we hear all throughout the book that procaine has this therapist you know he likes talking through things uh you know sorting out his his life and then and then it's revealed at the end that it's the therapist that's sort of been pulling the strings and uh in the book janet is not involved so we get to the end and we don't get that her in the the true sort of femme fatale role where kind of like she's at the core of it and she's betraying that we don't we don't get that oh, one thing the book does give us which the movie doesn't is exactly why procaine hires saint ives like he's when you think about it, maybe it kind of goes by, you just sort of take it for granted. But St. Ives is kind of like, he's a retired reporter, a retired crime reporter and a budding novelist. And he gets hired as the go-between to drop off this Pan Am bag full of money at this laundromat. And you might wonder, well, like, well, why does he do that? Like, like how do they get his number? And, and it's, it's revealed that Procaine is really interested in, his legacy he's this master criminal he's pulled off all these amazing things he's got it all in these journals and he wants his story written up so he hires uh saint ives because he's a writer and because he used to admire saint ives's crime column and he wants him to be a part of this this big heist and then to tell the story of it and sort of tell the world uh so that he'll be remembered See, in my mind, there's that one scene where the psychiatrist refers to the fact that um, Procaine uses other people, right? He, and he, he was going to manipulate other people. And so the psychiatrist says that, he, you know, he decided he would manipulate Procaine. And I just assumed that this was an example, like him hiring Bronson was him using Bronson, not in a, not in a bad way, but just because that's, that's his MO is to, is to manipulate others into getting the work done for him. But this is, that's super interesting that the book has him as, as just wanting to kind of promote his legacy. 
Yeah, and it's weird that they cut it out. They cut all sorts of little sort of connective things out. The book does make more sense, it, like to sort of in a linear fashion follow the plot uh, more so than the movie does. But I think the movie does lean more into that kind of L.A. noir mystery a little more than the book does. There's a, the, the, the cinematic callbacks kind of take over in the movie and sort of make it its own thing a bit. One thing that's funny is uh, Janet's character is is really beefed up for the movie. She's pretty limited in the book, um, although she does some of the same things. Uh, and she, she's very in the book. She's very strange. Like she shows up and just uh, has sex with St. Ives a couple of times. Like like you said, with the robe and her dropping it. But in the book, we get two really kind of tr really trashy uh, like page and a half sex scenes between the two of them from from St. Ives point of view there's lots of like there's lots of back scratching and like different sounds and stuff like that like in the way one of these sort of you know pot boiler kind of like uh you know short yeah. novels used to used to always you had to throw one of those in so in this case we get two of them so so there's that and she's got all these yeah she's got all these weird sort of ideas about things oh and that reminds me you had talked about him maybe taping them in the book um <clears throat> while there is her and then a guy the guy is not the therapist there's another male character sort of in in the role that the therapist the therapist fills in the movie but it's not him if that yeah, makes yeah. any sense and and he's kind of lurking around like while they're doing it he's like there <laughs> he's like comes out of the bathroom while they're in bed and stuff and so like he's kind of like watching them and this is a thing that he does and she's cool with that and it's this really weird kind of like kink relationship that goes on between all of them and even procaine it's sort of suggested so when you were picking up on that there is sort of like an there is an undercurrent of that maybe carrying over yeah that's a weird there's a weird dynamic in the film between procaine and janet where you know he'll kiss her hands he'll he'll kind of you know yeah. um refer to her in a very affectionate way but then there's a few scenes where she's kind of recoils when he's coming near her you know and you feel like uh, you're not sure where they are in terms of their relationship. And similarly with the doctor. Yeah. So that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to have been just a witness or have hear a recording or see a film of, of the making of, of this film where they had, you know, Bronson and Jaylee Thompson and the writer sitting in a room talking about how they should, they should pare the film down or pare the story down to make the movie make sense. You know, that's just so fascinating. I wish stuff like that was recorded. Somewhere. Yeah. Well, like we got to get Talbot on a chapter for this one for sure. <laughs> I'll send yeah. him an email. I, I think like uh, we haven't really mentioned Jacqueline Bissett much, but she, um, and uh, oh, wow. she, she's great in this movie. She would become sort of a huge star the following year. With, still a um, star like she's still making great yeah movies. yeah but she would become very no i think it's uh the deep right that was the the year after this where she has her very famous sort of like like white t-shirt scene that sort of catapults her to uh sex symbol uh status but i think she's amazing in this movie she's really great um yeah her style her crazy eyelashes like this super thick mascara she's always wearing in the movie Did you notice that 
her hair looks super cool. She's wearing that. There's that one like pantsuit, the black kind of black and white pantsuit. And then she wears this one like white kind of evil Knievel Elvis <laughs> kind of pantsuit. That's really yeah. great. Like they've really did a good job with her style in this film. And her acting is, is pretty, pretty extraordinary. Like she's a very, very capable and, and, and magnetic actor in this movie. Yeah, she's good. Uh, just, so, just before we get too far away from the book, just to wrap it up, um, it's a, it's an interesting read. It's a really quick read. Like this is a short little kind of just a little beach sort of thriller. I'm definitely going to check out the other four just because I want to have stories I can sort of picture Bronson going through. It's not the greatest. It's the first Ross Thomas book I've I've read. I wouldn't say it's the greatest. There's some there is some great dialogue and there's some really funny lines, but it's really kind of of its time as sort of a trashy novel. You can, you find a copy of this one cheap, pick it up, especially if it's got the St. Ives uh, cover on it like mine does, which I love the the painting from the poster on the front. This is another one of those books that I think I'm going to have to borrow from you or I'll go out and find my own copy. Uh, really appreciate you reading it and telling us about that today. Uh, and that brings us to our next segment, which is the Review Roundup. The Review Roundup. So Big Ray, what did you find about this one, man? A lot of people really love this movie, but I found that there's there's more kind of negative reviews on this one than I than I would normally find for a Bronson flick. What did you find? Yeah, I found the same. Like when you look around, you see a lot of middling reviews of this. I think I think it was different for him. For him, he doesn't uh, like he's not cleaning up the streets in in this movie. And I think some people maybe didn't get what they were looking for in their Bronson movies, so they find reasons to to dislike it. But this is for me. This is a kind of a seventies, um, you know, thriller that I love. Like there's so many movies like this. And so it's right, it's right in my wheelhouse. So I love it. You but know, I have to say too, like, I haven't seen this movie in God, 30 years. And when I saw it the first time, like I remember it had a positive impression on me, but it felt dated at that time. I watched mm-hmm. this, this time. I loved it, man. It was so, I love yeah. this movie. I've watched it. Three yeah, times. I love it too. It was so, yeah, yeah, really, really, this is one of my new favorites to be honest with you. I think it stands up there with all of Bronson's oh, well, you, best don't, films. Don't, you're getting into the, you're getting into our rating already. <laughs> yeah, I'm jumping ahead. I'm excited about it. It's such a good fit for him. Like I really wish there were more movies with him in this role, suave, fast talking, high fashion, like just just floating through the world of of crime and all sorts of shady characters like he's so good in it that i feel like there are 10 movies like this with bronson but there aren't like i'm sure like this is this the only one is there are there any other movies where he plays this kind of character you know it it harkens back a little bit to some of the movies he played in in france and in um Yes. You know, in the European films. Uh, but yeah, there isn't really anything of this caliber, I don't think, beyond this movie, unfortunately. You're you're totally right. And there should be. There's a lot of the the Paul Kersey in, in his movies, but there's not a lot of Ray St. Ives. No, you're you're absolutely right. And I was gonna mention that when I was doing my my substance bit. This seems almost like an American attempt to to make one of those French movies like a like a rider in the rain or a farewell friend kind of like to make him a sex symbol in that way and i I don't think it really succeeded with the public so anyways there's a lot of reviews that get into that kind those kinds of feelings i found 
Um, I discovered online something called Cinema Retro, which is a print magazine. Uh, I think it might be out of the UK, but also they have an online presence um, and they cover movies from the 60s and 70s. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit of theirs on the air here. Um, and uh, I might subscribe to this. I don't know. This seems like something I would like. But at the, at the end of a very lengthy review, uh, the fellow says this. Uh, he says, still, there's a telling moment late in the movie when Bronson pulls a gun. His eyes turn black and the gun seems an extension of his arm. While watching the scene, I was reminded of something I once read about Buffalo Bill Cody, that his popularity was largely due to his looking better on horseback than any other man. And Bronson, too, I could argue, simply looked better with a gun in his hand than any other actor. And he didn't need the comically huge hardware of Eastwood's Dirty Harry either. Bronson looked dangerous even with a small pistol. Perhaps it was inevitable that he'd resume making violent pictures and leave the more subtle characters behind. But in St. Ives, he was compelling without leaving the streets awash in blood. Bronson was better than anyone knew. Wow. Very well written. I think that's incredibly well written. So shout out to that magazine, like get online and, and subscribe to um, they're doing some uh, stellar journalism there. But I think that's totally agree. I love that observation the guy makes. Uh, Bron- Bronson just looks better holding a gun than anybody else. And he's he's such a he's such a quintessential American man. For for those of us who don't live in America, I think he he really does play into our kind of mythology of of what it means to be an American man in the in the 20th century. For sure. Yeah. And so that guy that guy loves it. He he really thought that was a great change of pace for Bronson. Well, I went the other direction and I found one that wasn't very well written at all. And it's not, <laughs> uh, it's not very positive, which, you know, maybe, maybe that makes sense. Uh, this is from March 23rd, 2020. So it's, it's quite recent. It's Adrian Ovaskinasolis, I think. I'm maybe not pronouncing that correct, but I'm no fan of Bronson, who I rate a mediocre actor at best. And then in brackets, Death Wish, Chato's Land, Once Upon a Time in the West were the exceptions to the rule. Okay. Mm. And certainly not of writer Ross Thomas either. So my view is that the common spectator, substandard direction, pedestrian cinematography, the worst performance I've ever had the displeasure to watch from Houseman, and the talents of Bissett and Shell badly wasted. Watch only if you have absolutely nothing else to do or to watch. Five out of ten. Oh wow! Well, passing. Yeah, passing grade. Yeah, yeah. It's not that badly written. It's just uh, I disagree with the sentiment hundred percent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think they're giving. What are you expecting? <laughs> I think they're giving lots to do. Shell is so funny. He has some. Uh, he has a couple lines that I can't get out of my head. His line delivery, and I don't know much about him. Is he affecting that accent in the movie? No, he's Austrian, I think. Is it, so is that yes. his natural accent? There's yeah, a couple I things I just love. I'll find myself muttering them after I watch this movie. One, and I almost start laughing when I when I hear it coming. It's like seen it so many times. Is when uh, he's in the he's in the bathroom and he's astringent. Yeah, he's gonna fix Bronson's hand. And he's like, <laughs> oh, I need I need a mild astringent. And then he's looking in the in the medicine chest and he's like, mild astringent, mild astringent, as he looks for it. Why don't you wash your hand, Mr. Sundives? Janet, could you get me some scissors? Ah, here, scissors. 
And now I need some gauze and a mild astringent. Mild astringent, mild astringent, mild astringent, mild astringent. Ah, mild astringent. Why don't you sit down, Mr. St. Ives? Oh, I just love it. And the other one <laughs> yeah. is when he reveals himself in the chair and and he tells Houseman, he's like, I've, I've had to listen to your mewling problems. I love that <laughs> one too. Yeah, he's he's great. I love it. I love when he's walking around the pool and he's like, Mr. St. Ives, Mr. St. Ives. He just keeps saying, Mr. St. Ives. It's no use and we <laughs> you might as well just come out, Mr. St. Ives. We'll end it quickly. You know? yeah, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> he's, by, he's by no means like like trapped like a rat or anything. Like he has no idea yeah. where he is. You might as well come out. Yeah. <laughs> he brought it his shoots. Yeah. But yeah, no. So Adrian Adrian Ovaskanolis um, clearly didn't see any of those scenes. No, and didn't appreciate the movie for what it was. No. I don't think at all. I mean, I can understand how someone might watch it once and and not maybe grasp the the depth of the film. But that gets us into our rating, man. And, yeah. and you know, it's, I I guess I'll go first because sure. I'm really uh, it's I'm putting it out there pretty clearly at this point. I'm giving it I'm giving this one a rating that's pretty high. We always rate the movie with some sort of object or something from the film, and I've chosen this time the uh, brown eight and a half leather bond leather bound ledgers, the brown <laughs> eight and a half leather bound ledgers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna give it I'm gonna give it nine brown eight and a half leather bound ledgers at <laughs> a ten. Yeah. Could I give yeah. it eight and a half, eight and a half brown uh, ledgers? I think that's more like I think that's like more no. like four and a quarter yeah. four and a quarter. <laughs> no, I'm gonna like I'd so often we've yet to hit a movie where our opinions diverge any more than about a, a point. Uh and I think usually one of us, if we have a particular affinity for it, we usually carry the other one off a little bit. But I, I like I can't see going less than nine. Uh, eight and oh. a half brown leather ledgers either because like this is one of those movies and maybe it's a funny coincidence because big lebowski is another one of these movies this is just like comfort food for me like i could put the i can put this movie on if i just want to have something on in the background i could put this movie on uh, like all day long i think it's, it's like the long goodbyes like that yeah too, yeah you know yeah, yeah. Which is very similar. Uh, yeah. Uh, in well, they they approach the same kind of thing in two different ways, but they're yeah yeah. The seventies was just a wash in these fifties throwback detective stories. Well, man, it's time to pick out the last movie of the season, and you know, like we had talked about previously, this is uh, Hard Times on Film. Charles Bronson and Beyond. So I thought, why don't we do a movie that's not a Bronson movie? Uh, maybe from the same era that we're kind of been delving into here. So mid, mid to late seventies. And uh, I wonder what you think about us doing the towering inferno Ray. Oh, well, Nick, I mean, like outside of Bronson movies, one of the other subset of movies that I absolutely love are seventies disaster movies. <laughs> all of the, all of the men, like any one of them, I am, I am up for, but Towering Inferno is like, it's one of the crown jewels of that genre. And so, yeah, I'd be super excited to watch that and talk about it. Ah, oh, Ray, you never, you never disappoint. And that's why we're friends and why we go back so far watching these films. Great taste in movies. So you are uh, listening to Hard Times on Film. My name is Nick. My name's Ray. 
Join us next time. In two weeks, we're going to listen to uh, Ray and I talk about the towering inferno. In the meantime, uh, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, uh, tell your children. Uh, leave us, uh, leave us one of those five star reviews. Now that we're up on Apple, it took forever, but they finally uh, got us up there. So uh, yeah, it helps other people find us. Uh, leave, leave some kind words for us there. So uh, fun for us to see that people are actually listening. So thanks again for for tuning in, and uh, once again, this is Hard Times on Film. Film.